Good morning. Good to see all of you. Today I want to talk to you about the king is mocked. The king is mocked. We're in Mark chapter 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, I'll start today with a question. How many of you have ever felt like knocking somebody's head off? Somebody, two hands. How many of you have ever lied in church? That's everybody else that didn't have your hands up. Um, sometimes in life people do things and it just totally irritates you, offends you, hurts you or the people you love in a certain sort of way. Uh, maybe uh, you get somebody pulls out recklessly driving in front of you uh, on the bypass. Maybe somebody cusses you out. Maybe somebody does something to your kids, and you just, like, your natural response is you want to go to this person and just put your hands around their neck until they decide to act a different way, yeah. right? Yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. But all of you are good, godly people, and you love Jesus, and so you don't do those things. Instead, you turn the other cheek, and you don't, uh, you don't stoop to that level, right? Um, that's a challenge, because we know that's what we should do, right? And sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. We know that's what we should do, but why? Jesus, why have you asked us to do this sometimes impossible thing, to turn the other cheek? Mark chapter 15, uh, this is going to give us an idea of why this is so important. Let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 15. Beginning in verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. And that's why we've gathered here today, Lord. That's why we've got our eyes closed and our head bowed. That's why we're lifting our hands in praise and singing out to you. It's because we honor you, we respect you, and we long for more of you. We know that everything exists for your glory, and Lord, we long to be your servants. And so today, Lord, I pray that you'll open our ears so that we may hear your word. You'll open our minds that we may understand your way. You'll open our hearts that we may receive your truth. Holy Spirit, please bring clarity to each and every person's specific situation so that they might know how to apply your word. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment, pray for those around you. There's so many needs here in this room, a lot of them we don't even know about. Pray for those that are watching online, that they might hear a word from the Lord. Pray for our city, especially the lost here in Winchester, that they might be saved. Pray for the Christians around the world that are undergoing persecution. And take a moment and pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, so... We've been studying the Gospel of Mark for a while, uh, 
and uh, we are nearing the end of Jesus's natural life. Um, Jesus comes into town this week uh, that ends on a Friday for Jesus, a uh, good Friday. Uh, it started with Jesus coming into town as a king. Uh, you remember that people lined the streets with their coats, and they're all hailing him, uh, Hosanna, son of David. And this is a, a coronation. It's a, it's a victory parade. It's, it's ushering in the kingdom to, or the king into his capital city. Jesus accepts that praise. And so he doesn't reject the claim of being a king. He, he accepts it. Uh, but the thing about Jesus, as the week goes on, we start to understand that uh, he's a king that's unlike any other king that we've ever experienced. And the king that he's ushering in is unlike any kingdom we've ever experienced. And he had an interaction, I, t- I referred to it last week, with Pilate, who is um, standing judge over Jesus. He's determining whether Jesus is going to live or die. And uh, Jesus says, Pilate says, so are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus says, it is as you say, uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. And we like to think, I think Christians make the mistake that when Jesus says that, it's a way of Jesus saying, okay, as Christians, we're just not supposed to care about what goes on on the world. We're not really supposed to affect any sort of change here. Uh, we're supposed to be super spiritual and just go to heaven. That's, so Jesus is the king of heaven and, you know, to hell with earth, basically. Uh, but that's not really what Jesus means. It means that the source, Jesus, when he says that, the source and scope of his kingdom is transcendent above all the other kingdoms. And so we're going to see a little bit of that today. Uh, Jesus is completely innocent. He's actually the perfect man. Uh, Nobody's ever been more worthy of honor and glory and praise than Jesus Christ. And so he stands trial. There's there's a couple group of people. They don't like Jesus because he has a lot of authority. Uh, His popularity is growing, and and they're trying to shut him down. So you've got the Jewish ruling class, and they want Jesus dead. And then you have the Roman Empire um, who is governing this Jewish ruling class. And the Jewish ruling class, they're kind of ornery, and they're hard to govern. And so the Roman authorities don't want to have to deal with the mob. And so they give in. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas in them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. And so they convicted Jesus of a bogus crime of being an insurrectionist, basically, is what they convicted him of. And they sentenced him to die. In that day and age, when a person was convicted of a, a, a charge like this and sentenced to be executed by crucifixion, uh, the Roman Empire, they had perfected this way of punishing criminals. And part of their goal was to humiliate the criminal to such a degree, in such a painful way, that no bystander, nobody that's witnessed to this would ever dare follow in their footsteps. So that's part of the goal. And so what they did is they, they uh, put on a placard, on a little piece of wood about this size, uh, the charge that Jesus was convicted of, King of the Jews. Now, this, this placard would end up on top of his cross. We've seen that image before. But before he got to the cross, he would wear that around his neck. And as he's going through these stages of judgment, his charge is following him, okay? And so this is the image that's painted that Jesus um, is, he's been charged, convicted, since to die as the king of the Jews, and he's going to carry around this charge with him. This is the beginning of Jesus' end. Uh, And a a crucifixion would start with what's known as a flogging. Uh, It consisted of binding the hands and feet of Jesus, stretching him over a whipping block, and then taking an instrument to his back known as a cat of nine tails. Uh, I've got a picture. This is an artist's depiction of what it looks like. It's a a handle that's got a leather strap attached to it uh, with many, many uh, throngs coming off of it. All those throngs are embedded, different uh, types of uh, sharp, 
uh, hard materials. The goal of this instrument is to rip the flesh off of the criminal's back. It's, to, it's a tenderizing, it's a ripping. Uh, many criminals undergoing this torture, all the skin would be ripped off their back. A lot of muscle would be stripped off their back. Sometimes their side would be open, intestines would fall out. Sometimes the throng would, would miss their body hit them in the face, ripped their eyes out. A lot of people died just because of this part of the torture. So they did this to Jesus, ripped the skin off of his back, and then they sent him on to the next phase. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. Now, the whole company, that represents Roman soldiers. A company is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. So we're talking about 600 Roman soldiers. Now, the thing you got to understand about this scene, it's so easy to skip over this verse and not understand the intensity of this moment. Roman soldiers hated Jewish people, and they hated being in Judea. They absolutely hated it because Jewish people hated Romans, and they were doing everything within their power to see them gone. There's a group of, of Jewish people during this time known as the Zealots. It's a political um, movement. They're kind of like anarchists, uh, insurrectionists in a way. And they hated the re- Roman regime. They were willing to do whatever they could to get the Romans out of Judea. One of the things that they would do, Zealots, they would find a Roman soldier who's isolated in the market. He's guarding the market there in Jerusalem, and he's by himself. And so the Zealots would covertly go uh, and sneak up behind this Roman soldier. Maybe one of them would distract him. Another one would sneak up behind and stab him where he wasn't protected by armor. And then they would just scurry off and they let this Roman soldier bleed out in the streets. This was a common thing. It was this kind of stuff that they were perpetually doing. And so we have Jesus who's just been convicted as the king of the Jews, an insurrectionist, which they, the Roman soldiers, would logically associate with Jesus being a sort of a ringleader of all of these zealots who are going around killing their brothers in arms. And they locked Jesus, the king of the Jews, in a room with 600 of these angry soldiers. How do you think that's going to play out? You remember uh, a few years ago, and it happens every now and again, unfortunately, tragically, uh, where uh, cops were getting shot in their cruisers or they were getting jumped in the streets. You remember this happened a couple summers ago. And sometimes they would catch the people that did this to the police officers. Have you ever seen the mug shots of those people that they caught treating the cops like, have you ever seen it? It's really, really, really bad. They get punished, right? So now you're starting to get an idea. This is the exact kind of scene that Jesus is in. He becomes, in this moment, the scapegoat, the whipping boy for all of the evil that the zealots have done against the Roman Empire. All the pent-up frustration they're experiencing in their moment against these people, they're going to take it out on Jesus. Verse 17, they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. It appears that the soldier's primary ambition was to humiliate Jesus. They put a purple robe on Jesus' back. Purple is associated with royalty. In this day and age, they put a crown of thorns on his head and they dressed him up as a king. They put a scepter in his hand. They dressed him up as a king and they pretended he was a king, but a laughable and weak king, undeserving of any respect or honor. Verse 18, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. 
I can just, as I'm picturing the scene in my mind, I can just see them and hear all these soldiers, 600 of them, pointing at Jesus as his body is just kind of crumbled on the floor. He can barely stand up. He's got, his, he's been completely stripped naked. The only thing that he's wearing is this purple robe and a crown of thorns on his head. And they're all laughing at him. Look how pathetic this man is. This man that claims to be the king of the Jews. Look how pathetic he is in our sight. He's nothing. Verse 19, they were hitting him on the head with a stick, spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying homage to him. How disrespectful. They took this scepter that they placed in his hands. A scepter represents the authority and the judgment of a king. They ripped it out of his hands, and they start punching him, smacking him around in the face with it, as if to say, what authority you have has been taken from you. You can't even keep your own authority. You're not in judgment over us. We're in judgment over you. And they're smacking him around. They're punching him with this, and then they began to spit on him. The ultimate sign of disrespect, reserved for the lowest form of humanity. You see, they're attempting in every way to strip Jesus of all human dignity. Verse 20, after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes back on him, and they led him out to be crucified. So it appears that Jesus was naked the whole time, now, now they've taken the robe, the purple robe off of him. They put their, his clothes back on. So here's the scene that's, that's painted here. Jesus is the perfect man. Everywhere he went, things got better. John says in his gospel, if we wrote down all the wondrous works that Jesus performed, there wouldn't be enough books in all the world to cover all the good that he did. He was a man, everywhere he went, things got more beautiful. Everywhere he went, people were blessed. Uh, no man has been deserved more honor and glory and praise. No man is more worthy to sit on a throne as a king than Jesus Christ. And yet, these soldiers stripped him of his majesty and they made a mockery of him. They treated the son of God like a stray dog. Why? Because what Jesus represented was a threat to what these soldiers valued. And in the soldiers' eyes, what they're doing to Jesus is actually justice. An act of revenge for all their fallen brothers and a means of deterring any other Jews to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And their way of thinking, doing evil to the enemy is actually doing good to humanity. But what does history teach us about this kind of justice? of this kind of way of trying to set the world right, doing what is right by our own standards, forcing the world into our own way. What does history tell us about this way of doing life? Think back to Adam and Eve. God gave them this beautiful garden and the tree of life to eat from. They couldn't have, they couldn't have built themselves a better place than what God gave them. But the devil lied to Adam and Eve, and he convinced Adam and Eve that God was a threat to their fulfillment. He says to them, you remember, he goes up to Adam and Eve, he says, the reason that God doesn't want you to eat from that tree, because if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. In other words, God doesn't want you to be all that you can be. God doesn't want you to have all you can have. God is trying to hold you back. And so Adam and Eve they eat the forbidden fruit as an act of rebellion against God. It was the only weapon they could find against him. This is how we're going to set the world right. This is how we're going to make our, our way in the world. What happened for Adam and Eve? Did life get better or did it get worse? 
life devolved. It went in the opposite direction. From beauty of the garden to the barren wilderness. From the abundance of the life-giving fruit to stressing and striving just to survive through thorns and thistles. From naked and felt no shame intimacy in the garden, totally known, totally accepted, fully exposed, fully loved. They went from that to all of a sudden the man and the woman become enemies with one another. All of a sudden there's, there's hostility between humans. All because Adam and Eve tried to order the world according to their standard by force. This destructive approach to life is contagious. You realize that? That's why if you ever lash out at your spouse in front of your kids, how will your kids interact with each other? Don't they mimic that behavior? It's contagious. Adam and Eve, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain felt threatened by Abel's relationship with God. You remember this story. He wanted to order the world differently. He said, I'm not, I'm not in the place that I should deserve to be. And so what does he do? He doesn't self-reflect. He doesn't self-improve. What does he do? He kills his brother. All humanity has followed in the footsteps of Adam. Recently, it was at some sort of a word show, Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife. Did y'all hear this story? Did you see this? He made a joke about Will Smith's wife. Will Smith gets up in the middle of the show, walks on the stage, and what does he do? He smacks Chris Rock across the face. A few weeks later, Dave Chappelle is telling a joke in a different place. He's giving his stand-up routine. Somebody in the crowd is offended by what Dave Chappelle has to say. What does he do? He climbs up on the stage and rushes Dave Chappelle. A couple weeks ago, there's a, a coach, peewee football coach, I think somewhere in Georgia. He's coaching the game. He does something or says something that one of the families, one of the fans didn't like. They rushed the field, ended up shooting and killing this peewee football coach. All that to say, this culture that we're in, it perpetuates not an eye for an eye, but an eye for a life. It's devolving. Think about mass shooters. The first, the first school shooting I remember when was I, was, I was in high school, Columbine. And it got all this national publication. And what, what happened? You start seeing all these copycats. Why? Because this behavior, this destructive, toxic, downward spiral behavior, it's contagious. And it's devolving. It gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. I've heard it said, an eye for an eye makes everyone blind. You mock my wife, I'm going to come and smack your face. You smack my face, I'm going to shoot you. That's what we see with the Roman soldiers. They're caught in a negative feedback loop, a downward spiral of perverted justice. So much so that they're willing to do evil to the perfect man in order to set the world right according to their own standards. But paying back evil with evil, it doesn't actually help anything, does it? I've never been part of a situation where you, you pay back evil for evil and the person that first started doing evil said, you know what, after you've done this evil against me, I've changed my mind. I repent I've never seen that. So 
if we can't cuss out the cusser, if we can't go to the house of the guy that just stole my iPad and put your hands around his neck, if we're not supposed to do that, how are we supposed to make the world right? Because this kind of stuff ain't right, right? How are we supposed to do justice? How are we supposed to set the world according to the proper order? God has a redemptive plan to stop the destructive cycle. But it's a plan we often run away from because the plan involves a, the, the righteous suffering. It involves the righteous suffering. It involves the one who is right, the one who is true, the one who is good to take on suffering. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. This is days before Jesus goes to the cross. He looks into the future and he says, see, we're going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And he will rise after three days. This is why this is important. The mockery and the suffering of Jesus was part of God's redemptive plan. It was part of God's plan to reverse the curse, to break the dysfunctional cycle that started with Adam and Eve and that is leading the world to hell. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head because in their perverted sense of poetic justice, this pathetic king of the Jews deserved a painful crown. But in reality, Jesus is leading the world as a visionary and self-sacrificing king. He willingly wears the crown. He takes it willingly, by choice, takes the painful crown as a way to take the thorns that Adam deserved to observe the curse that Adam earned and to pay it back, not with another curse, not with more evil, but with blessings. He takes all the punishment that Adam deserved by rebelling against God, by doing what is evil. He takes it on himself and he pays it back with forgiveness and redemption. Jesus is courageously standing up to the bullies. You see, this isn't cowardice. Jesus is not a coward in any way. Jesus is the most courageous man who's ever lived. This isn't cowardice. This is brave. He stands up to the bully, and without saying a word, he sends the most powerful message that the world has ever heard. I refuse to participate in this destructive cycle of of human nature. I refuse to participate. I will not pay back evil for evil. I will not pay back a curse for curse. Instead, you destroy me, I forgive you. This type of suffering short circuits the corrupted system that we're living in. Romans chapter 12, verse 21, Paul says it this way, do not be conquered by evil. Now listen, Christians, when you hear this phrase, um, turn the other cheek, God does not call us to be pacifists, okay? Our job as Christians is not to go and find some hole to hide out in and just pray that evil people and and the evil system doesn't come looking for us. It says don't be overcome by evil. That's not the goal, just to lay down and die, to become a doormat. That's not the goal. We're supposed to stand against evil. How do you stand against evil? How do you conquer evil? 
with good. Don't run from it. Stand up to it. But don't stoop to its level. You got to short circuit the system. The way to conquer evil is by doing what is good, not according to your standard, but according to God's standard. You see, if we want to be, play a part in changing the world, and I think we all do, you're on social media, you watch the news, you drive down Main Street, we see the problems, they're there. We see the injustices, they're there. We see the evil, they're there. And our heart, our soul is crying out like, I hate this. I don't want to see this. If I could change it, I would change it. Well, how do you change it? We must do what the Roman soldiers are trying everything in their power to discourage us from doing. We must follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Following in Jesus' footsteps is not a death march. It's not a humiliating defeat. Actually, it's a victory march. It is the coronation of a transcendent king. It's the ushering in of a heavenly kingdom. Verse 21, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We'll come back to Alexander and Rufus. Hold on to that. At this point in the process, Jesus' body is totally given out. He can't stand up under the weight of the cross. Fatigue, dehydration, blood loss, which means somebody's got to carry the cross. Typically, this responsibility would fall to one of the Roman soldiers, but there was a law in Judea, a Roman law during this time, that a Roman soldier could force a citizen, to a, a bystander, to pick up all their equipment and carry it. Now, the, the limit of the law is they could only force somebody to carry it for one mile. And so this is what Jesus, Jewish people would do, because they had no choice. It was by law they had to carry the Roman soldier's stuff. They would count their steps. And once they got to the number of steps that equaled a mile, they would put stuff down and walk away. So Simon is in this situation. He's got his own plans. This is a big holiday. It's like Pioneer Festival is waiting on him, okay? So he's making his way down the road. And the soldiers grab him, and they say, you're going to carry this. So all of a sudden, Simon's plans for the day are wrecked. His agenda for the day is just totally out the window. So he picks up the cross, and he follows Jesus to Calvary. Now, we could make a very strong case that Simon was technically the very first Christian. Because when Jesus, he's defining what it means to be a Christian, he says this, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he's got to cancel his plans, cancel his agenda, cancel his way of doing things, pick up his cross, accept the suffering, that's associated with following me and setting the world right and walk after me, follow in my footsteps. Simon literally planned it, changed his plans, picked up Jesus' cross and followed in Jesus' footsteps. Now, Mark is writing to a church in Rome. This church is beginning to experience all sorts of persecution from the Roman Empire. They are thinking, plotting, trying to figure out how do we navigate this whole situation. This is about 20 or 30 years after the event that Mark writes this letter to the church in Rome. And he adds this note here about Simon. He says, Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. This is a way, kind of a hint, that they don't know Simon, 
but they do know Rufus and Alexander. So chances are Rufus and Alexander were part of this church in Rome. Here's more evidence, Romans chapter 16, verse 13. We're being Bible nerds for just a second. There's a point. Paul writes also to the church in Rome, same church, and he says this, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. All this tells me that Simon, after this event, that he's forced to carry Jesus' cross, Simon becomes a follower of Christ. He becomes a Christian. Not only that, he disciples his family to become followers of Jesus. And his family goes on to have a huge influence in the church in Rome, so much so that everybody in the church would know his two sons. All that to say this. You can beat him. You can put a crown of thorns on his head. You can strip him naked. You can make him carry a cross all the way up a mountain. You can strap him to that cross until he's dead. You can bury him in the ground, but you cannot stop the kingdom of God. You can't. This highlights the destinies of the two kingdoms. There's two approaches to life. You can pay back evil with evil. You can do that. That's the world's approach. Or you can overcome evil with good. The kingdom of this world operating by this dysfunctional and destructive pattern, it is self-defeating. It devours itself. Isn't that what we are seeing in America? Destruction, implosion from the inside out. Isn't that what we're seeing? They called Rome the eternal city. These soldiers, they're humiliating Jesus, hoping to discourage anyone from following in his footsteps. They're, they are hoping to squash, squash this kingdom before it even begins, to stop the movement before it gets any more momentum. But the Roman soldiers... Where are they? They're damned. Where's the Roman Empire? The eternal city. No longer exists. But King Jesus and those that follow him are part of an ever-increasing, life-giving, world-changing, unstoppable kingdom. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the river rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and I will say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Friends, the kingdom of light is greater than the kingdom of darkness. Let me say it again. The kingdom of light is greater than the kingdom of darkness. And I know it is so hard to see that in the world that we're living in. But if you do good, we will overcome evil. This is a picture of an event that shocked me. Maybe you saw this. This guy's name is Brent. His brother... Uh, was killed by a police officer, this woman. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. This scene is right after she was sentenced. The police officer, um, she barged into her, this man's brother's apartment 
and shot him dead in cold blood. She thought she was going into her own apartment. She was going into somebody else's apartment. She thought he was an intruder. She shot and killed him. She sent it 10 years. She told the police she mistook him for an intruder in her own apartment. After the sentencing, this man, and I'm not sure the whole, uh, the, the dynamics of this situation, but this man is on the stand and he's given a statement. I think that uh, it's part of the judicial system that the victim's family can give a statement to the criminal. So he gives a statement and it's just beautiful what he has to say. I just want to read one part of it. He says, if you are truly sorry, and I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He goes on to say, I don't want bad things to happen to you. Actually, I don't even want you to go to jail. The only thing I want for you is for you to surrender your life to Christ and be forgiven. And then he turns to the judge and he says, judge, can I please go and give her a hug? God's goodness is more powerful than the world's evil. So it's this kind of thing, it's this kind of thing that short circuits the destructive patterns that our world is caught in. And so let us become partners in the world-redeeming work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us follow in his footsteps. Disrupt and disarm the evil powers and principalities by picking up our cross and following Jesus' footsteps. What time is it? I got one more page. I like this page. Oh, yeah, I got time. Mark chapter 5, verse 38. I want to help make this practical. Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the world's approach. You've heard it said, this is what you see everywhere. This is common, an eye for an eye. Somebody, smack, somebody offends your wife, you go and smack them across the face. That's what we see. But I tell you, Jesus says, my way is different. Do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also to him. Isn't that what Jesus did there in that room with 600 Roman soldiers? Now, truth of the matter is, you have every right to pay back eye for eye. You have every right. And I gotta be nuanced here because there are times, listen, Nobody's, nobody's telling you if somebody starts punching you in the street, don't, don't defend yourself. Do not do that. Fight back. Nobody's telling you if you're seeing a woman getting accosted in an alley to turn your head and go the other. No, you better, men, you better go and do everything you can to protect that woman. Amen? But when you can, make it your default response. If I can pay back evil with good, I'm going to do it. When I can, turn the other cheek, I'm going to turn the other cheek. Don't run from the evil. Don't ignore it. But when you can be like Christ and take your stand against evil by saying, I will not participate in this subhuman way of living. I won't pay back evil for evil. I won't pay back a curse for a curse. Instead, I will bless those who curse me. I will pray for my enemies. I will forgive those who have sinned against me. Christ proved that forgiveness is more powerful than change. 
is more powerful change agent than a fist. A fist can change a situation. Forgiveness can change a heart. Jesus goes on, verse 40, as for those, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Jesus was stripped naked. They put a coat on him. They took both of them away. You have every right to keep as much as you earn for yourself. But if you really want to disrupt this self-centered system that our world is trapped in, choose to be radically generous. Greed is common and expected, but sacrifice for the sake of others, it changes things. Jesus gave the flesh off of his back. He's called us to give the shirt off of ours. You have every right, verse 40, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what does it say? Go with him too. Isn't that what Simon did? You have every right to count your steps, to go one mile and not a step more, to do just only what's required of you. You have every right. But if you really want to make a difference, go the extra mile for other people. If you really want to make a difference, go out of your way to be a blessing even to those who don't deserve it. Jesus won the victory over the darkness. He disrupted and disarmed the evil powers and principalities that govern humanity, and he began the process of bringing heaven to earth by confronting evil. He didn't ignore it. All this whole week, he is confronting evil. That's why he ends up on the cross. And he spoke, he testified to the truth. They said, who are you? He said, I'm the son of God, I'm the savior of the world, I'm the king of kings, and I'm the Lord of lords. He did not shy away from that, neither can we. You confront evil. You say, this is wrong. Jesus is right. Submit to Jesus. Sometimes that requires us to turn the other cheek, to not stoop to the level of those that we're trying to minister to, those that we're trying to affect change in. Sometimes that means that we have to, we have to, Jesus was stripped naked. He, he crawled the last mile. We've got to follow in his footsteps. Let us be a turn the other cheek, shirt off our back, go the extra mile kind of people. That is the only way the world will ever change. It just is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've given us a model for bringing about the world that our heart longs for. Lord, help us to not cower. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to have discernment, Lord, of of how to navigate this crazy world. But overall, Lord, I pray that you will capture our hearts and minds anew today. And Lord, just help us to be in awe of you. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to walk in your ways, according to your word, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. This is a song of invitation, celebration, commitment. I, I, this, today was tough for me because I know y'all's story, a lot of you, and uh, there's nuance, you know, and I can't cover every little family dynamic and situation. Some of y'all have been through some things, and, and you got to set boundaries, and you got to do, you got to do certain things, and, and so... What I want to encourage you to do today if you're perplexed, like, Lord, how do I put this into practice? Ask the Holy Spirit 
to give you wisdom and empower you to do the thing that he's calling you to do. I will say this, if you're here today and you're carrying bitterness, it's just dragging you down. You're, you're caught in a negative feedback loop and it's killing you from the inside out. And it's that, that destructive thing in you, it's gonna make its way out one way or another. And so this is what I would encourage you to do. This may be the most life-giving thing you ever do. Come up here to the altar, lay it down at Jesus' feet. The man said, remember he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Here's a prayer you can pray. I forgive, but help my unforgiveness. You can pray that prayer. Jesus says, when you pray to the Father, pray, forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. You want to be released today? You want to help turn the world aright? Start with forgiveness. If you're here today and you're separated from Jesus, just understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Heaven is only found through him. The world is only set right through him. And so you haven't surrendered your life to him, will you please come and talk to me? It's not till you surrender to him that you truly start to live. So as we sing this song, come.